Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. everyone. Welcome to the Thrive Neurosport podcast series. I'm your host, Katie Mitchell. I'm a PhD candidate, a registered physiotherapist, and certified athletic therapist. And on this podcast series, we're going to be discussing the latest research in concussion education, management, and rehabilitation to thrive on in sport and life. Today, I'm really excited to have Michael Jorgensen uh, from University of Toronto. He's a PhD student. Uh, he specializes in sport-related concussion risk and prevention. Uh, Mike is a Trent University alumni where he completed both his uh, Bachelor of Science and Master's of Science degrees. Uh, during his time at Trent, he competed for the Trent men's rugby team and the Peterborough uh, Rugby Football Club, and he was named an OUA All-Star in his final season. His athletic experiences have played a critical role in guiding his academic pursuits, which we will discuss a little bit more today. With his background in health psychology, Mike's previous research examined athletes' attitudes and intentions around concussion risk and protective behaviors. More recently, he has shifted focus away from individual athletes and moved towards the systems For example, the rules and policies that facilitate or hinder the success of injury prevention in sport. Uh, Mike also hosts a sports science podcast called The Athletic Perspective. Uh, Welcome to the podcast, Mike. I'm really excited to have you on today. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. He's taking time away from studying for his comprehensive exam. So (laughs) I really appreciate uh, you finding the time to join us. Um, What I thought we'd start with today is just kind of discussing your background in sport and how that sort of fueled your research focus and kind of how you've evolved that over time into where you are today. Yeah, sure. Um, So where where should I start? Like back at the beginning with when I first started playing rugby or? Uh, Wherever you want. You can start with sort of how you got into even like university rugby and kind of building from there. Um, we both have kind of experience with rugby and know those environments. So if you yeah, can speak yeah. a little bit to that culture. Yeah. So I started playing rugby in high school and I really enjoyed it. It was a way, uh, to sort of get out, uh, run around with my friends and I, I really enjoyed the physicality and the, the culture around it. 
um, which with that, it's one of, of competition, but also a, a very big component of that is, is respect, respect for the game and, and respect for your opponents in terms of competition that way, uh, which I think for me, like just the ethos of that just really resonated. And so I played that in high school, loved it, had a lot of fun, did great. And uh, when I started uh, my bachelor's uh, at my undergrad at Trent, um, I reached out to the coach, David McCulley, uh, and ended up trying out for the team and, and making it and playing for uh, quite a number of years because I did my uh, my undergrad degree and then I did my graduate, uh, my master's there as well uh, consecutively. So that allowed me to stick around a little bit longer than most people are able to, uh, which was great. And so, you know, my... My background, as as Katie, as you mentioned, is in psychology, specifically health psychology. So my undergrad, uh, I did a lot of you know courses around health psychology and behavior modification, and there wasn't really a heavy sport focus. Uh, but given that I was playing rugby and competing, and I like to train and stuff like that, uh, that was slowly kind of involved itself in my my academic life too, and. When I was in, I think, third year, I guess this was like 20, 2012 or 2013, um, we, had, we had been playing, uh, I think we were about halfway through our season, and uh, I was planning on applying for law school, and I was about to write my LSAT, and everything was going great, and then I got a really bad concussion in one of our games. And it, it left me out for uh, quite a bit. Um, I was still able to come back that season. But, um, you know, at that point, I hadn't really known. I didn't really know a lot about the injury. And it was just one of those things where it's like, oh, yeah, you know, someone has a concussion. You sit in a dark room, wait a week and shake it off kind of thing. And you get back out there. But it was interesting that in me getting that injury, I wasn't able to write my LSAT and I ended up missing the application round uh, for that year. So so it must have been third year then uh, is when it was. So yeah, um, and I miss, missed the application round. So here I am finishing up my third year, not really knowing what the plan is for my fourth year and beyond uh, now that I missed that, that application deadline. And, and things are starting, I was a little worried to say the least. And I reached out to, uh, one of the, one of my professors, um, who does a lot of, uh, neuro learning and behavior kind of research, uh, Dr. Hugo Lehman. And I, I asked to do some research with them and we were looking at, um, adult neurogenesis and, and some of some of the stuff around that, which is kind of interesting. And, but it wasn't really what I wanted to do, but I didn't know what that was, but I knew like this wasn't quite it. And, and so it was fine. It, it was a good experience and, and, and he was a great mentor. And then after all of this kind of went down with the, my head injury, um, after the season, uh, we ended up having sort of a, an alumni event with, with previous rugby uh, Trent rugby players and coaches, and and I ended up bumping into Dr. Fergal O'Hagan, who is also a faculty in the Trent psych department, uh, but I hadn't met at that point, uh, which is kind of funny because Trent's so 
small. So I don't, I don't know how that is possible, but um, it happened. And so instead of meeting at Trent, where I spend all day, every day, uh, I end up meeting him at this rugby function, which was kind of fun. And uh, anyway, I'd mentioned I was doing that research with, with Hugo and we, but I said like, this isn't quite what my interest is. And then I started, we started talking a little bit about concussions and said, you know what, maybe that's what I I would like to study. And, you know, my experience was so interesting with that. And it kind of threw me for a loop in terms of like long-term plans and it is what it is, but I think that would be, that would be something really interesting. And, and he says, well, why don't we do that? You know? Uh, so Dr. Uh, Hugo Lehman, Dr. Fergal Hagen and myself um, started this project, uh, which turned into my, my undergrad thesis and then my master's thesis and now publications and so forth, so on. And so that was how something very, very tiny uh, kind of snowballed into something that's that's a pretty major part of my life, I'd say. And so I went, I did my, my undergrad thesis looking at uh, some of this stuff. And then when my master's, that really sort of expanded on, on that. And so that's really how my athletic experience, especially my experience with concussion, sort of funneled into that uh, academic pursuit too. Um, and then since then, I, I specialized in not just psychology, but health psychology specifically. And then from there, um, you know, with, with my master's of science and health psychology, and then now uh, I'm at U of T and exercise science. And so, um, you know, you'd mentioned in that brief introduction that I'm looking at some of those individual factors and have moved to more more systemic stuff and I found that was also reflective of my choice of programs where I went from trend and psychology which is very very specific with psychological theories and the psychological perspective so everything was kind of through that that lens and and I I found you know um, that that was great but there are a lot of other ways of addressing the problem too uh, and so when I applied to U of T, that was sort of my intention is with their exercise science department, it's very multidisciplinary. So there's the behavioral and sociocultural and the biophysical kind of aspects. And there's a lot of uh, sort of involvement from all of those. So I'm encouraged to sort of address the problem with not just a psychological lens, which I, I appreciate. Oh, that's yeah. great. That's really interesting. Um, it's funny how like the timing of sort of your based on your timeline of even when you had your injury to when you were kind of starting your research is sort of around the time where it was a big pivotal sort of, you know, with the Rowan Stringers, um, the incident in 2013, uh, that sort of, you know, springboarded that whole legislation towards Rowan's law. Um, And that was sort of around the same time where that, like, all of a sudden, especially rugby, it got a, a lot of spotlight around concussion and sort of all of a sudden there was everybody sort of looking at it. Um, and that's sort of where research also kind of blew up as well. And it was sort of along my own timeline where I started to recognize these things. And before that, nobody really knew how to address it. And you were kind of in that area, like sort of that timeline too, of like where it's still a lot of unknown and we still have a lot of unknown remaining today, but we know a heck of a lot more than we did um, seven years ago. So, um, and as you mentioned, like now you're kind of in a, you went from more of a specific to multidisciplinary department where you're looking at it from, you know, multiple lenses where like that is more kind of 
reflective of what a concussion is because it has so much complexity to it that looking at it just from one perspective is not going to really capture all of the information you're looking for. Um, so mm-hmm. I, I'm curious of what, uh, I know you published a paper a couple years ago looking at um, like the individual kind of um, like behaviors and characteristics uh, around concussion risk and those behaviors. So if you could expand a little bit on like what you found with that and talk about kind of how it applies to sport and prevention. Yeah, so that that project, that paper in particular, kind of came out of a little brainstorming session we had to really try and own in on, you know, what's our, what are we asking? What's the question? And, you know, spending time at, at the rugby club and with other, you know, coaching and, and being involved in other stuff, time and time again, it was, well, you know, injury is just part of the game. Well, if you change something major, then is it really still rugby? Or, you know, how do we maintain this level of competition? And so it all kind of boiled down to our, our question was, well, you know, how can we maintain the, the competitive integrity of the game while also keeping the players safe? And so, you know, as, as we started to, to build out, it was like, well, what, what sort of questions should we be asking? And if, if you look at the, the research, at least at the time, it's, it's not so much the case now, but it was back in whatever, 2012, um, a lot of the research was on uh, management, identification management, uh, and the only really sort of primary prevention, uh, and, and by that I mean pre- preventing the injury from occurring altogether, um, that was going on was, was education. Which, which is great, and we can see that uh, the growing awareness around that time and, and the media, you know, sort of helping with that. Um, but everything sort of focused on um, the, the, the management and rehabilitation side, uh, less so the, the prevention side. And so, you know, we started talking about, well, how do we, how can we prevent this? And but at that time, a lot of the research was focused on equipment uh, and focused on, um, you know, like helmets and mouth guards, which was the belief at the time that <laughs> perhaps that could somehow protect your head. Uh, I don't, I don't know, uh, where the rationale was, but anyway, so, and then, and then, like I said, so education and we're looking at this and we're saying, well, yeah, that's great, but here's this big issue where, and especially around what you had mentioned with Rowan Stringer, uh, here's this huge issue where athletes just aren't reporting their injuries. And so here's this big issue of underreporting in sport. And so, you know, we kind of latched onto that where that's, that's the specific area that we wanted to focus on. Well, how do we get people to report? Well, why don't they report? Well, what happens? Who are the, the types of athletes who might not report? And so that's where we started getting into this idea of what are their attitudes and beliefs and intentions towards those sort of protective or non-reporting being sort of risk-taking, conceptually a risk-taking behavior. And, and so that's sort of where it, it was founded from is this lack of primary prevention and, and this interest in, in why athletes are behaving the way they are. And so, you know, a lot of, theories uh, in, in psychology and, and public health kind of focus on this idea of, you know, knowledge equals behavior change. 
And, but there, there's some limitation to that when it's applied to an athlete sample because a lot of them sort of are founded on the assumption that people are going to act in accordance with what is best for their health. And we know a lot of the times athletes don't. <laughs> and, and this is, this, yeah. yeah, right. Um, it's that, that competitive drive or, you know, that want to do more, that one lot, right. Let's get back out there. Kind of, there's tons of, tons of different factors that go into that. Um, but it, the fact of the matter is, you know, education is good. Knowledge is good, but it, it's, it's good as a start. And it doesn't, at least to what, what the research has shown, is it hasn't really translated into actual behavior change. It hasn't translated into better reporting behaviors. Uh, at least it hasn't dealt with that sort of underreporting problem. And like you said, with you know Rowan Stringer, that that incident kind of becoming uh, very very um, public, uh, especially around so so second impact and going back in without recovering, hiding you know, hiding the injury from your parents, from your coaches, from your teammates, like all of that kind of factored into our interest in that, that particular topic area. And so, you know, the question then was, if not knowledge, then what? And mm -hmm. so with my, put my psychological glasses on and looked at it through the psychological theories. And one of the things that sort of popped up was this idea of risk perceptions and, uh, subjective norms and attitudes and intentions. And so the, 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 the idea with that is that, you know, people have a set of aptitudes, which are thoughts or feelings, um, towards a particular thing. So in this case, concussion or concussion management or, or what have you. Um, and then attitudes drive intentions and our intentions drive our behaviors. So that's the sort of rationale or th going theory, I guess. Um, and so we developed a questionnaire and this questionnaire assessed athletes' attitudes and their intentions to engage in protective behaviors and risk-taking behaviors. And so, you know, our, our main question was, like I said, what are their thoughts? What are their attitudes? What are their intentions? And, and sort of who are the athletes that hold these particular, whatever will come of this, whatever we'll find, who are, you know, can we sort of classify these into um, different clusters or different sort of categories? And, and so, our, you know, our, our thought with that was, again, in, in one of these brainstorming sessions is like, well, what do you, you know, what do you see when you're out playing? That was what they asked me. What do you see? It's like, well, I see a few guys who, you know, they'll do anything they possibly can to make sure uh, they're at the highest level of comp competitive, highest level of compete that they possibly can be. And if that means hiding symptoms to get back in, you know, these are your kind of bad actors in that sense. They're your sort of red flag um, athletes. And, you know, some of my buddies are kind of like that and whatever, and that that's, that's fine, but that's an issue. Um, on the other hand, you know, there's some guys who, who will totally um, do whatever, spend hours in the gym to get as fit as they possibly can and do 
you know, they're the kind of guys who are, who are doing, you know, an hour warm up and an hour cool down while everybody else is just kind of having the, the water cooler chat on the side of the field. They're, they're the guys in the middle of the fields doing the stretches and you know what I mean? Like just going so above and yeah. beyond what they, what they can do to like maintain that, that wellness. And, and so that was kind of our idea is like, well, there's definitely, you know, those, those two types of athletes aren't the same. And, and so, you know, how do they differ in those attitudes and how do they differ in their intentions? And so, yeah, so we developed this questionnaire, sent it out to some of the athletes at Trent and, and we got it back. And so some examples of some of the dimensions on, in terms of attitudes. So, you know, something like, uh, risk acceptance. So a question we would have on there is, you know, I would risk suffering a concussion in order to succeed in a sport that matters to me or, um, competitiveness, my competitive nature increases my risk for concussion or management, hiding concussion symptoms increases my risk for injury. So these are thoughts or feelings they have towards those particular things uh, that will then drive intentions and behaviors and so forth. And then, so what we found is we, we found essentially three sort of uh, clusters. So what we did is it's called a cluster analysis and it takes this wide range of responses to these different dimensions and it clusters them, it groups them uh, based on uh, averages and, and so forth. And so we found sort of three intention, uh, three clusters of, of responses and, and particularly in regarding to their, their attitudes. And so we found um, uh, we found sort of these, I don't want to frame this, these three clusters were, you know, we s categorized as, as sort of proactive athletes, uh, reactive athletes, and indifferent athletes. And so aptly named as, you know, as I was kind of explaining their, the typical behaviors before. And so where we see these proactive athletes, these are, like I said, those if you can imagine it, the guy in the middle of the field doing his stretches, you know, cool down an hour after practice is done. So they had uh, very, very positive, uh, very strong intentions to, to uh, avoid high risk situations, to properly manage, to wear protective equipment. Um, if they believe that would help them stay safe, uh, fitness. So there's fitness, uh, questions in there. So things like neck strength, if they believe that would, you know, increase their, or sorry, decrease the risk for injury, would they engage in that, uh, of, uh, and confrontation even. So even some like social questions around like confronting aggressive opponents for the risk that they cause others or, or highlighting it to the ref that, you know, a particular, uh, teammate even, or, or opponent is engaging in some high risk, uh, or dangerous play. Um, and so this proactive athlete cluster, uh, responded very strongly, very positively on all of those, you know, I will engage in these. Whereas the reactive were sort of all, they, they didn't really, um, say that they would engage in any of those with the exception of management. So it's one of those things where it's like, I'm not going to go out of my way to do, you know, to do all this stuff. I wouldn't confront an aggressive opponent. I wouldn't, you know, that's just not who I am. But like, if I get injured, yeah, I'll report it. Right. And so those are, that's why we kind of, 
classified them as as the reactive because it's you know none of those sort of proactive behaviors and then lastly uh which was roughly about uh, a third of our sample um fall fell into the indifferent cluster and so in terms of their intentions they hold, held no intent to engage in any risk reduction behaviors and m most importantly um they were significantly uh, against any management behaviors. They, they reported very, very low intent to engage in any management behaviors. And so that instantly was a, a red flag for us. It's like, okay. So then the next question was, who are these athletes? And, and, and why do they think that? You know, why do they hold these intentions? And so we dug into that a little bit more and we found that a lot of these athletes um, had experience with concussion they were exposed to concussion either indirectly through you know like they had a friend or someone who who had sustained a concussion in sport or they themselves uh and they themselves also had experience with one or multiple uh concussions and so you know when when we look at that and start to get into why some of the some of the thoughts we had were well perhaps they just had a very bad experience in their recovery Right. So they, they don't believe in the efficacy of the management. So why would they engage in the management? You know, here we have and this wasn't part of the study, but just kind of looking forward past the study and our sort of next steps identified in that paper were, you know, here you have athletes who had concussions, went through the management protocols, had a bad experience potentially, and now say, I'm not doing that. I'm not engaging in this. I'm not reporting it. I'm, I'm, I'm just not. And, and so the question is, you know, why not? And, and so whether that's belief in the system or social pressures or whatever, that's kind of the, the big, uh-oh, <laughs> that, that we found there. Yeah. I'm curious, did you, uh, did you have like include this survey with multiple sports or is it just in rugby in particular? Not just rugby. So this was all uh, varsity sports at Trent. Was there any like trends in the actual like sports themselves that contained more of these like indifferent or uh, reactive or proactive categories? There, there were some, uh, but not enough that it, it's hard because with the, uh, there's not a not a lot of athletes at Trent, <laughs> right? So, so it's hard to pull any meaningful through. conclusions. Mm -hmm. um, tentatively, you know, a lot of them, most of them, uh, played contact sports, but not all, right? Right. So or collision sports. So that would be you know rugby. Uh, there we had the hockey team involved in that, um, the lacrosse team, volleyball, rowing. So there there is a wide wide range. Both soccer right. teams. So very wide range of athletes. Um, but it wasn't anything in particular, uh, about that. Yeah. It's really interesting that you say that education doesn't always kind of result in intentional behaviors. Um, uh, because I do find like, even myself as a researcher, like I walk into a practice and everyone's like, oh, the concussion, you know, person's here. And they're like, oh, like they know, like they've been educated about it, but they're almost just like. I don't want to be reminded of like what could be taken away from me potentially with an injury like this. Um, and some of them are, like you said, like proactive in the sense that they're like really keen to be in involved and they want to learn about it uh, in that sense. And then others were just like, I'll deal with it when it happens. 
And then there's those people who, you know, even some who experience like game to game, you know, persistent symptoms and necessarily don't manage it or report it properly. Um, because, you know, I've, I've seen studies that say like playing a rugby game is like experiencing a small car accident every week. <laughs> so there are definitely, you know, even like a sub concussive kind of accumulation there, but, um, I'm just curious based on, so like what you've kind of brought this around to is really like kind of where you are now looking at more of the systematic, um, approach and all other stakeholders involved. Cause you know, based on those experiences, like who influenced that experience? Like, was it a coach? Was it, you know, therapy or lack thereof therapy? Um, was it a physician? Was it, you know, like a more of a parent or family member or friend that had a concussion that influenced like their perspective and sort of what they view it as? Um, so that's really interesting because I've definitely seen that trend myself just anecdotally of like, you know, some people who even reactively, like they realize that they're having persistent symptoms or prolonged symptoms and they didn't necessarily deal with it right away. But then like two, three months later, they're like, okay, this isn't really going away, whether their season potentially ended and they just left it. Um, and then, you know, in January, February, I end up talking to them or something then. So um, it starts to impact other parts of their daily life, even though their sport, the season has ended, for example. Yeah. And, you know, that's something I didn't, I don't think I mentioned before, but uh, there's mandatory concussion training for all athletes at this point. So all of them had undergone uh, seminars with the vars uh, you know, varsity or athletics athletics department through there, um, as well as um, you know, certain teams like rugby, for instance, went and did world the world rugby modules, and you know what I mean. So th yeah, they're they're educated, they're knowledgeable about it, Definitely. they know about it. And, you know, they, here's their intentions despite that. Yeah. And I, I don't want to throw like necessarily like a university therapy, you know, clinic under the bus. But I feel like a lot of the concussions that occur at the high school level, because a lot of kids come out of high school with experiencing probably at least one based on their sport experience. Um, and at that level, there isn't always like a therapist available or, you know, they just kind of go see a random physician with a sort of family GP um, who isn't always the most knowledgeable person to be seeing then. Um, and so I find once they reach varsity, like they've already kind of got that experience. So especially if they're playing at a higher level to get to varsity, they've probably been playing, you know, a, a collision sport for three, four years prior. So um, I wonder if that's potentially another kind of influencer is perhaps their experience prior to even entering a more like organized uh, sport, for example, at that level. Yeah. And that's when we look at things like, you know, their beliefs around that. Uh, and, you know, we had, we kind of joked around earlier about the, the mouth guard thing, but like that, that's common. That's still to some extent common, right? Or the, the collar. The... Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, yes, you, you know, I, I, I take this and I'm, I'm thinking about it and it's, you know, well, what's the solution? And, and, it, it's a lot bigger than the, the conclusion I came to was that, you know, it's a lot bigger than just that individual because there's tons of different factors that go into it. Like even, you know, even considering the, uh, you know, the seminar that they had to sit in from the athletics department or, or whatever, um, even that it's like, well, who, who makes that up? Who, who understands the content with that? There's no standard, you know, 
there's there's consensus statements and stuff that we can rely on but even even that it's like well who who are those experts and who are is not in that that could is also an expert you know what i mean like there's just so much it's such a new field and i think you know that was one of the reasons why i i've i've liked this so much because it's so emergent uh and and i think there's a lot of opportunity to explore that for for me anyway academically but um, it just, there's, there's never a shortage of questions. Exactly. It's like, and, well, I, I remember, uh, I think it was Kevin Gaskowitz said, uh, studying concussions is like studying a black hole where it's just like yeah. a continuous process <laughs> of evolving questions. Um, I'm curious now based on this previous research that you did, and obviously like some of your recommendations is looking at the other influences and the other stakeholders around the sports, um, that you had, uh, looked into. So, uh, talk a little bit maybe now about where you're at, like kind of steering your research focus towards that more global approach to it. Yeah. So like I said, I've taken more of a systemic approach to it and, and realizing that there are, you know, the, the psychologist in me would say, well, you know, if, if not their attitudes, if not their intentions, let's find other personal factors, whether they're chain, you know, modifiable or not, and, and explore that, um, very individualized. Um, but like, like you said, there's, there's a lot of factors that go into that with coaches and ATs and, and whatever, right. The whole culture aspect of it. And, and so that, you know, like I said, led me to sort of look at it through a multidisciplinary lens or want to look at it through a multidisciplinary lens. And that's, like I said, led me to U of T, um, and so some of my stuff now is looking at more broadly, um, di so different types of, of primary prevention. So now that it's it's been, I don't know, I think seven seven years, I guess, since I started doing that research, there it's come a long way since, you know, it's just education uh, or it's or it's helmets or mouth guards, right? Um, the idea of primary prevention has started to take a bit of a, a foothold, which is good because it's looking at aspects to uh, prevent the injury from occurring altogether. So um, when when we look at, at that, a big factor has been uh, rule changes and policy as well. Uh, so the Rowan's Law or, or the license law in the States and, and so forth. Um, but particular one of interest for me, going back to my main question, again, how do we keep the players safe? while maintaining the comp competitive integrity of the sport, um, that, that to me just screams out rule changes. And, and so there's a lot of different, you know, looks at or research around that where um, on, in one hand you can get, you know, things like, like there's one, one research article I read recently that looked at um, rule change in terms of limiting the amount of interchanges or, or subs you're allowed. And the rationale was, well, if you allow more subs, the tired people can get off and tired people are at risk uh, for, for more injury, not just concussion in particular, but looking at broadly at, at the sport injury literature. And so, you know, get the tired people off, put fresh legs on and, and, you know, risk is going to go down. Injuries are going to go down. And, and what happened was actually quite the opposite where injuries went up and risk went up. And, and I thought that it was such a, such a fun article to read because it's like, oh, you know, that goes against what the, the first thought is. And, and the idea was that when you allow, when you limit the number of interchanges, when you keep the amount of subs allowed low, um, there's no mismatches 
uh, in terms of um, athletic, in terms of uh, intensity, in terms of fitness, uh, getting into, say, rugby in particular was, was what the study was looking at, getting into that 60th, 80th minute. And like all the fatigue, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So the fatigue plays uh, a part, and um, the fitness uh, or, or fatigue sets in, and the speed of the game goes down. And when the speed of the game goes down, the impacts go down. And when they impact, you know what I mean? So it has a sort of cumulative effect. And, and I think that really stuck out to me because that's something where uh, that's that's a very simple rule change that doesn't impact anybody's ab- ability to compete, but it ends it impacts the end result in terms of injury risk. And so what I've been looking at recently is you know talking to specific stakeholders who are involved in stuff like that. So within the sporting system, so um, you know. Your, your your typical athlete, parents, coaches, uh, med, medical staff, but also some of those folks that um, haven't really been explored very much uh, in terms of sport administration and, you know, uh, club presidents, say, in terms of rugby uh, or even referees. And so that sort of here here's the referee, which is essentially the gatekeeper uh, for these you know, rule changes is the the arbiter of whether these can be effective or not. Uh, and yet nobody's really asking them their thoughts on this. And so, you know, when we look at, uh, say, rugby, for example, which I'm probably going to pull all my examples from rugby, um, <laughs> is, you know, you have, you have a yellow card and you have the red card. And those were instituted as injury prevention or risk reduction strategies you know you do something dangerous uh but maybe unintentional you get a yellow card you sit under the sticks in the end zone and you, you think about really hard about what you've done in the sin do bin some, yeah in the sin bin exactly <laughs> <laughs> you do something quite dangerous and and likely intentional uh you get your red card you're out of the game well there's presentations of that and it's a very public act and the referee pulling that out and they are the manager of when that happens. And so it's interesting because different sports go about this differently. You know, in rugby, you have one referee, a head referee, potentially two ARs. Most off, more often than not, it's just a player on one of the other teams running up and down the sideline with a little, little flag. Um, but potentially you have ARs, but then in hockey, you have several referees for like what, 12, uh, 12 athletes on at a time, whereas rugby say one and 30 athletes. And so there's different ratios of, and, you know, and then the culture comes into that where you see, you know, in, in football or, or the cross or someone, you know, yelling at a referee, whereas the culture in rugby is maybe, you know, you don't do that so much people kind of get on you if you get in the referee's face and so different different sporting cultures have their different ways of of managing that and looking even to you know mentioning the referee thing uh, referees in rugby have always had the ability or at, at least um this this rule implementation was relatively uh, old now i think it's about 10 10 or 15 years now um where if they see someone with a suspected injury um, they can remove them from the game and now it's been updated more recently to include concussion language specifically. Yeah. 
Um, and they have the power. They are the final say. doesn't matter what the coach says. doesn't matter what the med staff. They can pull on them for, you know, um, a second perspective. Mm-hmm. But if the ref says you're out, you're out. Yeah, I've experienced that actually uh, just in my own field work when I was working for the um, cl- the club in Waterloo. Um, a couple of referees actually had, and it was it, it's hard even for a therapist to see everything that goes on in a 15s game. But, um, you know, a, a ref actually said, like, this player needs to leave the field. And I know that a decade before working in rugby, if I was trying to remove a player, I would be getting some flack from like coaching staff and stuff of like removing, you know, their player from the game because sure. they're like, well, why do they need to be removed? And like, I had nothing really to prove back then because there wasn't as robust of testing uh, to do on the sideline even, or as much education. So like education has done, made it's made some impact there. Um, but I really think that taking it away from like removing the bias and having the referee, as like you said, that gatekeeper to protect the welfare of the athletes as well removes the bias of like a coach or influence and pressure on a therapist, for example, of like that, like kind of more sport administration side. And I think that has definitely come a long way in that culture for sure. Um, but it does, does definitely help. <laughs> yeah. Especially when you're dealing with adults too, adult athletes as well and trying to convince them to come off. It's like when the ref tells them to leave, it's like, well, they have no choice. Um, you know, they can, you know, be upset about it, but they still have to leave the game. So, uh, that has definitely been a, a, a game changer, I would say. Um, and I think that was honestly th- two or three years ago, probably now that I, yeah. I had that happen, but it's been a, a great rule change that I think, like you said, doesn't affect the competitive level of the game necessarily. Um, so yeah, that is incredibly interesting. Um, and so just like moving ahead, like what is your goal, I guess, with now this research of like, what do you see like as your future kind of, you know, implementation of how you're going to actually use this type of stuff to influence changes and ideally kind of affect that cultural change rather than just kind of like the you're saying like the individual behaviors, but actually the behaviors of everybody else surrounding the sport. Well, I think it starts and, um, yeah, so I think it starts with uh, grassroots sport. It starts with amateur sport um, because when we see things like, you know, I had mentioned that the referee has the power to do that in rugby, but, you know, in hockey, they rely on concussion spotters. In the NFL, they rely on anonymous concussion spotters with the belief that if someone has to make the decision to pull an athlete, nobody knows who that person is. They're not going to get catch flack for it. Whereas, again, in rugby, kind of taking a different approach is like, no, no, the referee's got that. That's cool. Um, they can handle that. Uh, and so, you know, those are those are instances where that that sort of change is happening. But in terms of changing sort of the broader culture around that, um, like I said, it starts at amateur sport. And so, you know, it's all fine and great to say, yeah, we have concussion spotters. Yeah, we have sideline management with the pros, with NCAA athletes, with even, you know, to some extent, university athletes for the most part. Um, but then what about club rugby? What about, you know, those junior leagues in, in hockey? What about, you know, junior lacrosse? Are they going to have concussion spotters? Or do they have properly trained medical personnel at all their games? And, you know, we the, the research also says that in a lot of instances, you know, more injury comes from practice 
than it does from games, but more severe injury happens in games. So there, do you have an AT uh, or, or someone at a practice? The, the answer is no, <laughs> right? Yeah, you might for the have most a volunteer part. or a dad who ha- or a mom who has their first aid or, you know, maybe as a nurse that happens quite often at the club, uh, club level or that amateur level, um, but nothing's formalized. Yeah. And, and so those are the sort of areas I think that need to be targeted now that we see, you know, education's coming a long way, awareness is coming a long way. We have these sort of broad policies uh, in Rowan's law where, you know, there's mandatory education. Uh, you have to ensure the timely removal from play. Uh, you have to get doctor, physician clearance in order to return. You know, th- there's some established standards now. Um, but now the next question is how 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 do we make those effective? How do we implement those, and how do we build out support for those? Because right now, like I said, that education only goes so far. Yeah, exactly. And I think like I know that there are some incidents. I think it comes down to overall funding of um, you know what kind of resources teams can access. I know that the more like money a team has, for example, they can have an AT on site and. Unfortunately, like a lot of the high schools I know in my region, um, like they don't have therapists at like collision sport games. Um, there's, I think, a couple school boards that are starting to implement that. But even at the high school level, like they don't have like football, rugby, like everything. They don't have therapists there. And it's a huge risk for them and liability. Um, but I wonder, too, uh, just kind of switching gears. But I was thinking about like the influencers of um you know, athletes in specific sports and sort of surrounding their culture of each sport. And I, I know that there's a lot more uh, media that actually use like high profile athletes in those sports to now like be sort of the spokesperson for concussion. Um, you see that with like the national team, they kind of have uh, like the Canadian sport institutes. They've, they've got like their select athletes from kind of all across uh, parasport and uh, operate sports. And they've sort of got these key key people there but um you wonder if more of from that perspective whether like i know that some cultures they like to hear from people who understand their culture and so um like someone like yourself for example would probably be able to to affect more of like a rugby culture because of your experience in that sport and people would probably be more apt to listening to that um, and actually like really doing something about it rather than like you talk about you know, the education that's just the general course that every athlete has to take. It's like, do they really care about it? Because they necessarily, the person teaching them doesn't have experience with their sport. Um, and you wonder if like kind of those key profile athletes that are influencing younger athletes in general, if they're kind of like the spokesperson for these campaigns and things, whether that would influence someone to actually pay attention to it more. Yeah. And there's a lot of different ways you can look at that. That's, you know, that's getting more into sort of public health and, and health messaging and stuff. And you can look at sort of other domains to get an idea of what this looks like um, when, you know, smoking cessation, for example, uh, they started putting very graphic photos on cigarette cartons uh, in a way to affect behavior change by appealing to sort of that emotional um, aspect of it. it. It works. There's different ways that works. Hearing about you know, athletes like Rowan Stringer, her story, that works in, in a lot of instances, whether that is effective um, in, in particular to concussion and sport, you know, 
it the the research is developing so nothing's really conclusive at the moment but right there's there's different ways when you look at risk taking and risk taking behaviors um you know you can pull from from other sort of domains of public health mm -hmm. the messaging that really kind of hits home with specific athletes yeah and you know you mentioned the media and stuff and i think that it it both plays a a very positive role in that the awareness of concussion um, now is far greater than we ever could have imagined with the support of, you know, the news cycle, essentially. Like, you know, think of uh, how often did, did folks in, in hockey talk about concussion until Crosby's out <laughs> on his second concussion exactly. or third concussion, like right? That key spokes, that like high profile player that all of a sudden everybody's paying attention. Right. And uh, on on the flip side, you know, there might be it might be a bit of a double edged sword where it creates a sort of panic or what can be done? Can anything can be done? Or should we just, you know, not let kids play sports, which, you know, some people would make that argument. Sure. Especially, you know, those who who are maybe just contact sports in particular or con uh, collision sports. Um, I don't I don't think that's the solution um, because I think that type of sport brings different sorts of values uh, in terms of, you know, youth development and, and physical activity and stuff. Um, but it's a fair question. It's a fair concern. And, mm -hmm. you know, what, what comes of that? Um, you know, we see lower participation rates at the youth level, uh, yeah. sport participation rates. We see, um, you know, a bit of a hysteria around concussion uh, yeah, hypersensitivity, with, with the lay hypersensitivity, <laughs> right? And and that's not saying that's necessarily misplaced, but you know, the the fact of the matter is, people recover on average uh, within you know ten to fourteen days from a head injury without any long term consequences. Not not everybody does, and and not everybody recovers at all. And you know that the water gets a little muddy when it comes to multiple concussions, but at the end of the day, if properly managed, if properly recovered, does that mean your 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 son or your daughter can't con continue back to sports, right? So those are that's kind of the the far other realm of of what the media brings is is it kind of pro brings um, like you said that that hypersensitivity to to questions like that. Yeah, definitely, and I think just the the boom and sort of the media and like. You know, just like we had the movie, the concussion movie come out a couple of years ago and well, a few years ago now, probably. And <laughs> it's a lot of people are exposed to it in a sense that it almost I think that's where we go back to like kind of the beginning. We were talking about your clusters of be risk behaviors and those types of athletes like sure, maybe they've heard so much about it now. They've like almost stopped. They've become indifferent to it because they're just like, oh, yeah, like I've I've gone through this. I've done this before. I can, you know, yeah. whatever. I already know everything about this. Um, and you almost wonder it's because they're like, they think that they're, and that maybe comes down to a bit of an ego thing too, of like, do they think they know more than other stakeholders of like, perhaps they've like, I've gone through all those seminars, I've done all this stuff. Perhaps they're thinking now that like, they could just manage it until probably they become the reactive player. And I, I think that probably could be a little bit more dynamic if they could switch into those clusters based on what their experience is and what happens to them. Um, because they might be more reactive when something actually does occur and then they end up seeking out care for that. 
Yeah, and I think, you know, going back to some of that, that management stuff is, you know, you want them, you want them to report, you want them to engage. And, and there might be some of those sort of misperceptions or, you know, there's so much out there on, you know, this, this athlete may believe, you know, I've done my research, I've looked online, there's millions and millions of concussion resources online now. And again, it comes back to my question of who's making those? Are they qualified? Do they know what they're talking about? Right. And, you know, it, they might be just bouncing off the the common myths or facts kind of thing, but exactly. is it really up to date? You know, even looking at stuff um, on on some of the Canadian government websites is is still pretty dated. You know, like they they recommend um, in every situation full rest, where we know new research is suggesting you know gradual return to physical activity, uh, which exactly what you do, <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. Um, whereas the belief before was, no, just sit in a dark room and, you know, just hang out. Uh, once your symptoms are gone away, then you can they can emerge. And I think that probably created a lot of the negative experiences. And I do still hear of stories from practitioners who say really, uh, really like permanent statements. Um, and they create this perception around their concussion that this is it. You're dealing with this. Um you know, whether it's a neurologist or their physician where they say, you know what, like you shouldn't be doing anything. You're done your sport. Like it really grinds my gears when I hear like a, a healthcare practitioner tell someone they can't do anything anymore. Cause there's always mm -hmm. a way you can still do something. It might not be at the same level. It may not be as in, intense, but you can build up to doing it and potentially, you know, there's other ways to play sports rather than just at the highest competitive levels. Of course. Um, but it, it is really discouraging because they haven't even reached their like recovery or potential for recovery. And they've already been told this like really, you know, permanent. This is this is it. You are going to experience this for the rest of your life type scenarios, um, especially at the varsity level, because, again, those athletes have been playing sports for several years at that point. Right. Um, and so it really I think that I, I try really hard as a clinician to change those perceptions. And those people walk in my door. Um, regardless of when I think the recovery is going to occur, uh, it's, it's something that I think needs to be, and I don't know when this is going to occur. Cause like, you know, it's been a long process already of this sort of, uh, evolution of change and perceptions, but where it's going to be more global across all the different stakeholders. Like I know a lot of coach, like I was saying, coaches are buying into it. Um, parents are buying into it and the referees, like everyone kind of around the sport, but at what point is it going to be sort of that whole um, process? Like everybody through that process is going to be kind of on the same page. And that's kind of, I guess, mm -hmm. the, the future of still we're, we're all trying to work towards. <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, you'd mentioned those sort of short and whatever recovery suggestions from like physicians and stuff. And I think that's reflective of, of the biomedical emphasis that the field of concussion is sort of revolved around, you know, here's this big injury. Well, how do we, how do we diagnose it and how do we help people who have it? And that, you know, those are biomedical questions, yeah. right? How, how do we help folks recover and return to normal functioning? Um, but what, what is missing or maybe not missing in, I, I would I'll preface this with in a practical sense, in a lot of cases, not necessarily in the literature, because there's a lot of fantastic research that's going on in this area, um, but I, I don't see it implemented. 
um, very well is, you know, when an athlete is injured or when anyone's injured, there, there's a physical response, but there's also a psychological response. And when you have athletes who uh, perform day in, day out, who train day in, day out, they're active, they're engaged, they're that, you know, their normal is, is the gym. Their normal is the field. And then you're saying, no, no, you can't do that. You're injured, you can't do that. Sorry, your, your head's injured, so not only can you not do the, the part, you know, work the, the part that's injured, so cognitive rest, but also physical rest, which differs from other injuries where I break my arm, well, I'll still run. You know, I break my leg, well, I can, I don't know, do... You do like right? weights or you something. You do weights or something. Body. Yeah. You know, there, there are options that doesn't change the fabric of my day-to-day as an athlete. Um, and so, you know, we get into questions around like athletic identity and, you know, how established is that idea, that sense of self, that idea that I am an athlete and that is who I am, um, impacted by an injury, uh, such as concussions. And that's, you know, above and beyond anything, uh, in terms of, you know, mood swings or, or any sort of, um, emotional side effects that come as a result of that injury anyway there a there are these psychological responses like that too right definitely evolves from that and i've i've seen where like a lot of those meaningful um habits or just like daily activities and you know more of their values are removed that they don't know who they are and that almost leads to that further kind of exacerbation of other things i think is for sure you know you remove someone's identity and like kind of the post-traumatic stress of the whole thing kind of just starts building over time. And that leads to further issues um, psychologically more so. Um, we see these psychosocial changes and evolution of personality over time too when you remove like what someone has been doing for several years. Um, and it's very abrupt. So like a lot of the time, like what I teach now is I teach a lot of the science, but it's also like make it meaningful so that, you know, even if it's just small interventions that aren't, you know, too intense or anything like introductions activity, but like, you know, do it at practice on the sidelines. So they're still involved and they can be there at practice or something to sort of still give them that sense of belonging to their team, because that team to them is like almost their family in some cases when you're spending that much time with people. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so that, that can really cause a lot of, you know, more adverse things when you just, you know, pull it all away kind of in one, one go and just say, nope, you can't do any of this anymore. That that's huge. Um, no, I think honestly, we could probably talk about this all day long, uh, of all the different directions to go in. And I, I'm really excited to see, uh, your future research and kind of what you're coming out with soon, uh, you know, after your comps and things are done. Yeah, yeah. Um, one thing at a time. <laughs> yeah. It's always, you know, we have all these big ideas and all these you know, want to make these huge contributions and, you know, you can somewhat make a small dent sort of a little bit at a time. Um, but I know, I think you're doing really awesome stuff and it's so important to look at it from like this lens that you're speaking of to, to kind of connect this like education to prevention piece and sort of like bridge that together. Um, and yeah, so I wanted to, just before we wrap up here, um, if you want to speak to kind of, I guess just uh, like sort of the future of like what you have coming up or anything you have going on. Uh, I know probably studying right now, you don't have a lot, but um, you can speak to your podcast and different things you're trying to do, do with that. Yeah. Um, 
lots of reading right now. Like I said, not not too much writing at the moment, but I'm sure that'll that'll come soon. Um, a lot of what I'm doing is just really starting to frame what this means in in a practical sense. Uh, really trying to bridge some of that research and bring it down to. Um, you know, what does this look like as a rule change and what supports are needed for that rule change to be successful kind of thing. And so a lot of time of mine is spent, like I said, either reading or just, you know, thinking about questions and kind of developing that in my head uh, and through conversations with my my supervisor and other folks in my lab. Um, in terms of the podcast, uh, even that, I mean, has, has been a little bit on, on hold, uh, given the, the current state of affairs with the, the COVID situation. Um, it's really hard to do a sports science podcast and sports related research when there's not any sports going on. Uh, <laughs> that's a good so, point. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I mean, if there is ever a good time to do it, it's well, for that to happen, it's while I'm doing my comps. So potentially the one so that's what I keep telling myself anyway the one silver lining from all this yeah definitely um but if anyone is interested in checking out that podcast it's called the athletic perspective um do you want to just mention how people can find you on social media and find the podcast um yeah so you can check out the website uh so athleticperspective.com and we have a Facebook page, Twitter, Instagram, where we post lots of fun content uh, and stuff like that relating to our guests and our, our episodes. And um, there, there's a blog component to that, too, uh, which is kind of taking the backseat a bit. But now that I'm in about to get into that writing mode, I'll start to have some regular blog posts as well. Um, so if, you, if you're interested, check it out. The whole sort of gist of the podcast is bridging that sort of science and sport um, with the the experience of athletes. So we're not just talking about statistics or not just talking about, you know, more of the the sport in terms of, you know, like a, an interview like you would get on some sport podcasts with athletes, but really bridging that with the science. So if I'm talking about something like concussion, it's I'll bring in some of the science aspects of it and discuss that with the athlete in relation to their lived experience with that. Um, yeah, I think that's really awesome. Uh, I was on your podcast as you well, and that was podcast, a yeah. super, uh, that was a fun time. <laughs> so definitely uh, we... check that episode out. <laughs> <laughs> no, no selfish plug for me there. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you've had some really great athletes on there too, and across like a spectrum of, you know, levels of play and also um, across abilities too with parasport and things as well. Uh, so it's really been interesting. I've enjoyed those episodes quite a lot. So I think we'll just uh, we'll wrap things up there. Um, so thank you so much for joining me again today and taking the time away from your studying to uh, to speak with uh, with me today. Uh, and thank you to everyone for listening to the Thrive Neuro Neurosport podcast series. Um, you can find me on Instagram at Thrive Neurosport. And if you're interested in learning more about uh, clinical neurosport education, you can uh, check out my website, uh, thriveneurosport.ca. But until next time, keep on thriving on, friends. Concussion Talk Podcast is presented by HeadCheck Health. HeadCheck Health bridges the gaps in concussion care through simple, powerful technology. Join organizations like the Canadian Football League, Track Factory Racing, the Canadian Junior Hockey League, Eastern Washington University, and Volleyball Canada 
Hula and Headshake Health to improve communication and optimize care. Visit HeadshakeHealth.com for more. Music at the beginning of this podcast is by Ben Sound. www.bensound.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.